Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may give us insight into how we relate to each other, especially as husband and wives. We pray for too for those who are single to know who to marry. And we just pray that once again as we open your word, we pray that we will bow down before it, to listen to it, to listen to your instruction, to respect it and reverence it, and to let the Holy Spirit be working in our hearts so that truly we will live lives pleasing before you and that our lives may be a thanksgiving to you for the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. We pray for all these things in His name. Amen. Now, uh, statistically, uh, marriage is uh, going a bad way in the world. Uh, In the Western world, one-third of all marriages will end in divorce. The bad news is that the rate is increasing. And in Singapore, in the last 10 years, the divorce rate has increased 300%. And I was just reading in the newspaper a few months ago that actually in some Western countries, there are actually more people who are cohabiting together now than are getting married. So the question is, does the world really have anything to teach us about marriage? About how to choose a good partner, how to behave in marriage and how to remain married? I don't think so. Because the world itself doesn't give good evidence that it knows much about marriage, especially a good marriage. So as Christians, we will be unwise to get our marriage information from uh, magazines like, uh, I don't know what women read these days, but you know, uh, obviously not the new paper, okay? And I was reading somewhere that even like uh, books like uh, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, I I remember reading in the the Straits Times just a few months ago that even the author himself who wrote that book which so many people rely on for their marriage information, he himself is a divorced person. So it, it begs the question, where do we actually turn to to find out the secret for a good marriage? Well, obviously, as Christians, we believe that God who created marriage will tell us what a good marriage is like and how to find a good marriage partner. Now today, I'm going to look at things a bit differently. So the framework is we're looking at the book of Proverbs, but I think that the important thing is to look at how the Bible sees marriage as Christians, first and foremost, create a framework for the understanding of marriage, and then look at what Proverbs says and how it dovetails into what the framework for marriage is. Now, I want to warn you that whether you're married or whether you're single, some of what the Bible says can be painful and uncomfortable. But in the end, it's all good for our blessing and for our benefit. So as you are a married person and you listen to this sermon, the first thing I want to caution you is, when you listen to these things, your natural response will be, that's what my married partner needs to be doing. I'm going to go home and I'm going to remind her or him that he needs to or she needs to do this. But that would be the wrong response because really, uh, what you need to do is you need to ask yourself, am I living this way? Don't worry so much about your partner. But ask yourself, how am I living in light of God's word? And if you're a single person, uh, don't fall asleep because this passage will be teaching us as well about how to choose a spouse. So today, as we look at today's passage, if you look up here, the framework, I think, for uh, marriage, which is uh, what you usually get when you go to a wedding, is Ephesians chapter 5 because really this is the the seminal foundational message in the Bible, I suppose, which deals with marriage and man-woman relationships in marriage. Now, as we look at this passage, usually when you go to a wedding sermon, where do people start from? Or if you look at your Bibles, where do you think the passage starts from? Most people will say, verse 22, isn't it? Because 
The title says, Husbands and Wives, or Wives and Husbands, whatever. But actually the passage begins, uh, the next slide, right at the very beginning here, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, that is the main verb, be filled with the Spirit. And as you are filled with the Spirit, you will live in certain ways. You will speak with one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You will sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. You will always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fourth thing is, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And when you look at this word, submit, it begins a new section where we actually see that our spirit-filled lives is not speaking in tongues or prophecy, but actually in relationship. And if you are filled with the Spirit, you will submit to one another. And then it goes on in the passage to talk about how this submission is worked out. Wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. So the first thing we learn is, if you are a Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit, then you must express that Holy Spirit in a way that you relate to other people. And most importantly, first up, is that wives must submit to their husbands. Now this word submit is a very emotional laden word. I don't think it's a word that uh, the modern world particularly likes. We like the word freedom. We don't like the word submission. And uh, whenever you think of the word submit, you, you sort of think of uh, a very negative picture. You know, someone who's treated like a doormat or some, being under someone's thumb or being some sort of a slave or something. And I remember when I got married, uh, we had this passage as the Bible passage. And I remember my, my, my wife's aunt came up to us and said that, uh, she was a Catholic, she said, I will never submit to my husband. And uh, we said, okay, well, uh, well, that's good anyway. But thanks for coming. <laughs> thanks, for com- thanks for coming. Thanks for coming anyway. And so you can sort of see that, you know, submission is a very negative, there's a lot of me- negative connotations. So how do we understand this submission? Is it a bad thing for wives to do? Is it something we should just ignore or sort of be embarrassed about? Well, the first thing is, let's look at what submission means in this passage. Now, the submission here is not a enforced submission. It doesn't come from fear or force or someone forcing the woman to submit. But rather, it's something that you, as a woman, freely and voluntarily and willingly give. You notice the passage never tells the husband to make sure your wife submits to you. It never says to the husband, keep your wife in submission. It never says to the husband, subjugate your wife. No, it always speaks to the woman and says, submit yourself. And you submit yourself freely and willingly. And the first reason that you do so, as you can see in verse 22, because it says, as you do to the Lord. And that links back to the idea in verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. So as a woman, as a wife, you submit to your husband because of your relationship with God. Because you choose to submit to Jesus, you will submit to your husband. And the reason why you submit to your husband is because marriage is patterned upon the ordering of Christ and the church. In terms of the vertical relationship between Christ and the church, so we order our relationship with one another in marriage. So, the church submits to Jesus Christ. And it freely does so. Now today you are at church today. Did anybody force you to come to church? 
No, right? Because this is not the second service. It's only the first <laughs> service. Right? Now, no one forced you to come to church today. No one put a gun to your head. But you came to church today because you freely chose to come to church because you're submitting to Jesus Christ. You know that Jesus Christ is your Lord. This is important. He has told you to do this, to encourage one another, to have fellowship. So the first thing is, the, Christ, the, the relationship between Christ and the church is one of willing submission. We as the church willingly submit to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. But the second thing, if you notice carefully, if you look at the passage carefully, there is also a beneficial submission. Because it says there in verse 23, we submit to Jesus because He is our Savior. Right? He is our Savior. And if you look through the whole book of Ephesians, there are many benefits and blessings which come when we voluntarily submit to Jesus Christ. When we submit to Jesus Christ, He becomes our Savior. We are saved. In chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, when we submit to Jesus Christ, we are built up in Christ. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 19, we receive His love. Chapter 4, verse 7, we receive His grace. So the submission that the church gives to Jesus is voluntary and freely but also it is for her benefit. When we submit to Jesus Christ, it's not so that Jesus exploits us, or oppresses us, or bullies us, or takes advantage of us. No. It is because of the benefit that we derive by submitting to Jesus Christ. So, the wife must freely and willingly choose to submit to her husband. It's not something that is forced upon her. And also, if it's modeled upon Jesus and the church, it is something that is for the wife's benefit. Now, verse 33, look at your Bibles, verse 33. The next thing the wife must do is to respect her husband. Okay, it says respect. Uh, I didn't put it up there, but look at your Bibles, verse 33. The wife must respect her husband. Now, why is there this injunction or this instruction to respect the husband? Isn't it enough to submit? Why must I respect my husband too? I think that the reason why you need to respect is because basically the wife has a role not just to be like a meek doormat but to actually be part of a loving partnership with the husband in terms of serving God in the world. And that requires her to respect, to support, to encourage and to build up her husband. Now I know that that is not the picture of marriage or the role of the wife in uh in many of the situations I come across, and I'm sure for yourselves too, you've seen many cases where there are wives who do not respect their husbands. So I remember going to many dinners, family dinners, and one of the reasons um, I find that family dinners, not my family dinners, I mean extended family dinners, right? I have family dinners every night, but I'm talking extended family dinners, is because some of my relatives, their wives don't respect their husbands at all. So, you know, I'm sure that you can sympathize or understand what I'm saying. You know, you go to dinner and then the wife will say, Oh, you know, my wife, my husband, yeah, he's lousy with handling money. You know, he's always losing money in the stock exchange. He's always a lousy driver. We're always late because he's always getting lost. Or, you know, uh, he's a fat fellow. He's always fat. You're always eating too much, right? Or, you know, your jokes are always boring or something like that. That's not really respecting your husband, right? It's actually undercutting and hamstringing him and tearing him down. Unfortunately, the male ego is a surprisingly fragile thing, right? 
Now, you know men look very big and strong and very confident, but really, as a wife, you need to support and encourage and build him up so that he can be the best husband he could be. The picture of marriage uh, before the fall is, uh, is this, right? In Genesis, we're going to look at Genesis as well at the same time. So Genesis chapter 2, um, before the fall, God put Adam and Eve together. And the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So man and woman came together to serve God in a partnership better than they can do it individually. They have to come together so that they can serve God in marriage, in the world that God had made. So Eve was to be his helper, not to be his hinderer. And if you do not respect your husband, you do not back him up, you do not encourage him, but you keep tearing him down, then you're not actually fulfilling the role that you have in marriage. You're not actually helping him. You're not helping him to serve God in the world, but actually hindering him. Now, I'm sure we've all heard the saying, behind every great man there is a... A hamster? No. <laughs> right? A woman. Okay? A great woman. So, I remember a wise old pastor told me once before, before I was married, he said, a good wife can double your ministry, but a bad wife can halve your ministry or even destroy it. And I've seen that happen before in theological college where people who are very gifted, they go out to ministry and they're wise because they're not supportive. They can actually destroy the husband's marriage. So I think that, uh, sorry, the, the ministry as well. But what I'm saying is that ultimately those things are the two things that the wife has to do. They have to res- submit to the husband willingly and freely and also to respect and to support the husband. So the application for wives today is, is that what you are doing? Do you willingly and truly, freely wish to submit to your husband? And also, do you respect him? Do you encourage him and support him to be the best head of the family that he can be? Now, if you're a single person, I think the question that you have to ask yourself is, if you want to choose a marriage partner, will this be someone that you will happily want to submit to and happily want to respect? Because this is someone that once you choose to commit to and marry, you will have to submit to and you will have to respect because that's what you are called to do if you choose to reverence and respect Jesus Christ. Now the next point that comes up is husbands. Okay, husbands. So you look up here in the slide, you see that there are 40 words to the wife, but 115 words to the husband. Now why is there twice as much words or instructions given to the husband? I think because, contrary to uh, common belief, the role of the husband is actually more demanding and difficult. Because as we, we you know, if, if you were reading uh, Paul's letter 2,000 years ago in the ancient world, before men are from Mars and women are from Venus, popular marriage manuals of the day would not usually tell the husbands to love their wives. In those days, it would not be unusual to teach husbands to make the wives submit to them, to how to subjugate or keep their wives in submission. Because they live in a very patriarchal society where you know, wives were not the same, uh, same level as, as, as husbands of those days. So it's very, very surprising that the Bible actually says to the husband to love your wives. That's very unusual uh, in the, on those ancient days. But even more so, to love your wife in the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
So what the model of Christian husband headship is, sacrificial love to the extent of death. To care for your wife so that you will die for her is modeled after the church. How do men generally over time treat their wives in marriage after the honeymoon and after the love is gone, after they've lost the loving feeling? Right, next slide. Well, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, uh, a similar passage says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, we've often seen this happen in, uh, you know, different, uh, I'll keep using family dinners, okay, in different extended family dinners, right? You see this, isn't it? Where the husbands are harsh with their wives. They're not loving, they're not gentle, they're not sacrificial, and because, you know, men are physically bigger, we can bully our wives. And we can put them down, we can use harsh words, we can be, you know, we, we can be, have lack of caring for our wives. But here, the husband who models himself after Jesus Christ will model himself after Jesus and the cross. He will love his wife to the extent of giving up his life, his career, his hobbies, his uh, fun, uh, in order to do things for the wife including going shopping. Now, C.S. Lewis said that Christian headship modeled on the cross sees the wife receive the most and give the least. Oh, that's a terrible thing to say, isn't it? Christian headship modeled on the cross sees in the wife receiving the most and giving the least. But that's what the picture of Ephesians is. Because Jesus gave of all of himself for the church. So as husbands, Christian husbands, we need to follow that model and give never-ending, inexhaustible, unwearying care and forgiveness for our wife. And for what end? For what benefit? Well, in the passage it says that we are to love her the same way that Christ loved the church and to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water to present himself a radiant church without stain, wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. As he continues on, he says that uh, we are to love our wives as we love our own bodies. The, therefore, when we love our wives, it's for her benefit, for her whole total benefit, uh, her emotional benefit, her spiritual benefit, her physical benefit. So as, as, as I pour out my love and energy to my wife, she should be able to grow as a person. She should be able to grow emotionally, grow spiritually. So I remember another pastor once said that as a husband, you are a beautician. That you are a beautician. Your wife should look more beautiful after you marry her than before you marry her. Because why? You are pouring your energy into the marriage, not to get what you can get out of the marriage, but so that your wife can grow as a person and in her relationship with God. So, as a husband, is that what you do? Do you care for your wife as a total person? Do you feel that physically, emotionally, as a person, spiritually, she is growing and you are pouring energy so that she is growing in that way? Because that's what our responsibility is, isn't it? And I think that it's very important that we see that she is part of my flesh. We are one body. So when my wife is happy, I am happy. Right. Do you ever feel that way as a husband? If my wife is happy, I'm happy. If she's sad, I'm sad. Because obviously we're one, we're one family, we're one flesh. Right. Isn't that what it says there? 
we will, after all, no one ever hates your own body, right? You hate your own body, but you feed and care for your body. But the problem is sometimes husbands hurt their wives, but they themselves don't feel hurt. But see, that's not the, that, that shouldn't be the case. We should, we should see ourselves as one flesh. And again, coming back to Genesis chapter, 24, uh, chapter 2, verse 24, it says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will be, become one flesh. We are one flesh. So you won't want to hurt yourself. You will want to feed yourself. You will want to help each other grow. Help each other grow physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. So as a husband, do you love your wife sacrificially that way? Do you look after her physically by making sure she has enough sleep? By looking after the baby? Do you ask her about her day and talk to her so that emotionally she can unload on you? Uh, do you ask her about her prayer life, her Bible reading? Because that is what it, sh- what it means to show sacrificial love as the head of the family, to be beneficial to her. And uh, if you're a single person, well, that's the way that you need to, to, to act towards your, the person that you're going to marry. Is this the person that you want to lead in this way? Would you be wanting to give of your life for this person? Okay, now we have the framework. Okay, the framework for Christian marriage. Sacrificial love from the husband as head of the, family, uh, of the marriage and submission and respect by the wife. So let's now look at the book of Proverbs. Okay? Now, um, a few weeks ago, I came across a very uh, humorous email because um, someone was uh, doing these emails for one of the Bible study groups and I happened to be CC'd on it. And then somebody, one of the women wrote and said, how come there are so many things in Proverbs which always tell the husband what the, you know, what the wife must be doing? And why is it there's nothing telling the, the, the husband what he must be doing? You know, why is it always Proverbs that like, the woman do this, the woman do that, the woman do this? Where is the Proverbs 31 of, for the husband? Now, when we look at the book of Proverbs, I think that uh, we might need to understand two things about the genre of, of, of Proverbs. Why is there's so many things said to the woman and uh, relatively less to the man, to the husband, or to the, uh, to the son? First of all, the, the genre of Proverbs is that if you read through, it's always father to son. Father to son. Right? That's just the way that it's written. That's the way, the style of Proverbs. Father to son. And also, within the book of Proverbs, it, it often uses women as the picture of a personification of wisdom and foolishness. Right? You know, in the first couple of eight chapters, which we did earlier in the year, it always talks about foolishness and women, uh, foolishness and wisdom as women. Right? Okay, sorry, I just slipped my tongue there. Okay? Foolishness and wisdom as personified as women. So, once you have those two things happening, therefore, a lot of the instructions come out in terms of a woman, you know, you must do this, okay, son, watch out for all these things. But I still think that if you look through the book of Proverbs, and I'm sure even those days when um, the Jews and the Israelites were reading through, uh, the, the daughters and the wives and the mothers, when they look through, they can still get the same lessons. They can still see uh, similarities of what Proverbs is teaching us in terms of both men and women. But as we will see as we go through, we also have to be sensitive that there are roles that men and women play which are more applicable in terms of some of the things that Proverbs says. Okay, so it's not that everything's applying to everybody, but there are, there are some sensitive things that we have to be aware of because men and women still have different roles. 
So let's look at the first thing that we need to look for in terms of what the proverb says. And I think that when we look at Proverbs, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. Now, this is like a memory verse. If you want to remember a memory verse in terms of marriage, this is it. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Okay, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a, man, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, this comes from the, the very long section which speaks to women. But I think that this verse uh, applies both ways. It can be seen in terms of what do you look for in a marriage partner? Because remember, this is to the, from the father to the son, but I think that equally it can be from a, a mother or a father to a daughter. What do you look for? Do you look for the superficial external, external, ex, externals? Or do you look for what is really important, which is the fear of the Lord? Now, it shows you, I think, that not much changes under the sun. Okay, because I remember reading a newspaper uh, article, or was it listening to the radio? I can't remember now. But they were asking people, what do you look for? Uh, in, uh, or what do women look for in a man? And they were saying, okay, they want somebody who is charming, somebody who is humorous, somebody who is funny, nice personality, extroverted. I don't know, is that true? Is that what women look for? But I think it's, it's true, isn't it? To a certain degree, women want... People who are char- you know, humorous, charming, you know, nice personality. But the problem is that, uh, like the commentary says, charm is deceptive, isn't it? Uh, and also, once as, as you look at it, just look at it from what the Bible is saying, it's deceptive because it only reflects the person's personality, but not that person's character. What does that person like really like inside? Because charm can be very nice when it's directed to you, but then when the magic is lost, when uh, you get on the wrong side of that person, they may not be so charming after all. They can be very nasty, very unpleasant. So I'm, I remember when I was working at work, before I became a, a pastor, when I was working in the workplace, and I remember there were some colleagues of mine, they were very charming and very nice. But then you, if you cross them and you get the wrong side of them, well, they were not very charming and not very nice after all. So what is that person really like inside, behind that charm? What is that person really like at the end of the day? Well, in the book of Proverbs, it says charm is a relatively, relatively unimportant trait. It says the same thing about beauty. Right? It says the same thing about beauty. Beauty is fleeting. The word here... It's actually the, the, the very common Hebrew word, havel, right? It's, um, it's the same word in Ecclesiastes, you know? Meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity. It's the idea of something which is here today but gone tomorrow, like the idea of steam or mist or the morning dew. It doesn't last very long. And it's the same thing for beauty. Now, I think as men, we have to be very careful because men, from what I understand, as a man myself, right, one of the traits that men look for women is brains. No, that's not right, isn't it? <laughs> it is beauty, right? They look for beauty, isn't it? Right? Men do not choose their... I mean, they don't go for IQ test, you know? They, they look for beauty. And, and the thing is, it says here that beauty is a relatively worthless trait because it lasts so short. Sure, you know, you have plastic surgery, Botox, and all those sort of things, but, but at the end of the day, it, it, it doesn't last. If you marry someone for beauty, 
then what is, what is there left after that beauty is gone? So what really matters, again, if you look at this very powerful proverb, is the fear of the Lord. The real character of the person is formed by their relationship with God. Do they really fear God? And if they fear God, then the good thing is, they're on the same blueprint, the same page, the same plan for marriage. And as we've seen in the book of Ephesians, it's very important to be on the same page for marriage, especially in a Christian marriage, because men and women have very specific roles to play. So a man who fears the Lord will practice sacrificial love as the head of the family, head of the marriage. The woman who fears the Lord will submit and respect you and support you and encourage you and be a pillar to you. Now, if you marry someone who doesn't fear the Lord, then if they're not on the same blueprint and the same page, then it can cause great pain. I know of cases where husbands ask their wives to have abortions. Is it for her benefit, for her good? No, it's not. It's for his own selfish reasons. Uh, I've heard of wives who ask husbands to do ungodly things and encourage them to do ungodly things. Is it for his good? No, it's not. So, Proverbs is very clear. Don't look for the superficial externals. Look for what the real character of that person is. And the most important thing is, that person must fear the Lord. The second thing is, uh, okay, this one is a bit more complicated, but if you look at your bulletins, I've put down someone who walks the talk. Someone who truly follows God's ways. Now, in chapter 2, very early on already, the father is warning the son to follow wisdom. Why? Because wisdom will save you from the adulteress. That's what it says in your NIVs or your ESVs. But actually, the real word is from the strange woman. Okay, Save you from the strange woman and from the wayward wife, who is the... Actually, the, the literal words are the foreign woman with her seductive words. Now, why is this woman strange and foreign? Is it because uh, the Bible is uh, xenophobic? Right? No, it's not talking about non-Jews or foreigners because this person in verse 17, right, if you look up there in verse 17, right, she has made a covenant before God. So this person is actually a, a Jewish person who goes to the temple. Maybe she goes to the synagogue. She'll be the sort of person who goes to the church on Sunday. So this person, outwardly, seems like a person who fears the Lord. She has made a covenant of God. She probably goes to the temple, makes sacrifices. But she's a very dangerous person. Why? Because she's strange. She's foreign. And she is strange and foreign because she lives outside the moral, legal, and ethical boundaries that God has set her. She's a stranger to God's way of living. She's a foreigner to the way of God. That's why she's strange. That's why she's foreign. Not because she's got different skin color or different culture or different nationality. And this person is dangerous because once this person lives outside the ways of God, she can destroy her own marriage and she can destroy those who come to her because her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirit of the dead. Now, this reminds me so much of this uh, sermon I heard by this black pastor and uh, I, I, can't, I can't replicate his uh, voice or his thing. But you know, he was saying, like, you know, you brothers and sisters, okay, you, you, know, you, 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 uh, you bring people to church and praise God that they come to church, but then you go out with them. 
He says, but do they, are they really sanctified? Are they really uh, believing in God? They still swear, they still curse, and they still want to have premarital sex. And why? Well, it's like what Proverbs says, they are strangers to God's ways. They are foreigners to God's ways. And you should stay far away from these people because outwardly, yes, they say they fear the, God, they fear the Lord, but they do not follow His ways. They do not walk the talk. Now, before I became a Christian, I became a Christian quite late in my life. I used to go out with Christian girls. Christian girls always ask you this question. Do you go to church? Yes, I, go, I went to church. I mean, once in a while, yeah, I went to church. But, you know, I was usually late. I didn't pay attention. And did I take it seriously? No. But yes, I went to church. But this person, myself then, I'm a stranger to God's ways. I'm a foreigner to God's ways because I don't take it seriously. And what... The Bible is saying is, don't go out this person because this person is dangerous and they will lead you away from God because they are not really part of the family of God at all. Now the third thing, the third thing that the, the book of Proverbs says, okay, is that up here, it is, you've got to look for someone who is faithful and committed. Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. Uh, now, I realized after I went to the Bible study, this is not saying that there are no faithful men. Okay, It's saying that many people claim to be faithful, but not everyone you know, is going to walk the talk. Not everyone is going to be faithful. Okay, It's not saying that there are no faithful men, so don't get married. All right? Now, what is the, the heart of marriage? Now, many people will think that it is love. People think love is at the heart of marriage. No, that is wrong, right? It is faithfulness, faithfulness and commitment is at the heart of marriage. So sometimes uh, I do the marriage preparation class with people and uh, there's this thing called the idealistic, uh, you have to do this long quiz, right? 45 minutes. And one of, the, is one, of the, one of the sections is about idealism. And one of the questions is, is there ever anything that will make you question your love for your partner? And some people know, say, no, nothing will ever make me question my love for my partner. But that's too idealistic, isn't it? Because if my partner was to sleep around, cheat with, uh, cheat with someone else on me, of course I'll question her love. Or and my love for her. Because the most important thing, according to the Bible, if you love someone, is to be committed and faithful. Right? Faithful love. That's why when you have your marriage vows, forsake all others right, till I die. Because the heart of marriage, the foundation, the glue is faithfulness, and commitment. And that's why, as Christians, we must never buy the lie of the world which talks about de facto relationships, you know, cohabitation before marriage, moving in. Because that is relationship without commitment. Relationship without faithfulness. So sometimes when people move in together, I say, why are you moving in together? They say, well, but we really love each other. But what is love? What do they mean by love? Uh, do you mean love for a little while? Do you mean I will love and look after the children that I have of you? Does that mean that I will love you so that we will buy a house together and we'll pay each pay for it and keep it forever? No, because that becomes marriage, right? See, that's the thing. You see, we are all very weak people and the Bible recognizes we're weak and that's why when we get married, we have a public vow. We make a public commitment. So when you, when you come and get married, what really happens? You stand up in front of your friends you stand up before God, you stand up before especially 
your wife's family and her friends and you make a public vow that you will promise to care and love and forsake all others and keep only to this person forever and ever till you die, that you will share all your money and possessions and that you promise to care and support for your children. That's what you're doing, isn't it? You've made a vow. You've made a commitment. You've chosen to be faithful. Now, it's very different from having a candlelight dinner, have a glass of wine, and say to the other person, I love you. Because like uh, this person was saying, private promises are as durable as the morning dew. Okay, they don't last very long. So I remember a cousin of mine who was uh, thinking of moving in with someone. I said to this person, I said, would you buy a house and just make agreement verbally over a dinner with someone without writing a contract? No, you wouldn't. Would you start a business together, pour all your life savings to someone and just agree verbally about what you're going to do without writing it down, no witnesses? No, you wouldn't. Would you buy a, house, a car? You know, cars are very expensive now. If someone else decides to share it with someone and without writing down, okay, who's going to pay what? And how often we're going to drive it? And just say, okay, let's have a private agreement. No, you wouldn't. So why would you want to start a life with someone without actually getting them to make sure that they are committed and faithful to you? Doesn't make sense, right? So I think the book of Proverbs here says two things. First of all, <clears throat> if you're going to go out with someone, make sure this person is willing and serious to make a commitment to be faithful to you. And this person is serious about wanting to make a commitment to be faithful for you ever till you die. So last week, uh, there's an Straits Times, it's in my bag actually. There was an article, don't worry, there was an article about, um, there was a pull out section about childbirth in Singapore, I think they want more children, right? So anyway, there was one section about this woman who was, uh, what was her name? April. April, I think she had four relationships, something. Anyway, on the sidebar, there was some advice by some uh, relationship expert. The first thing she said was, women, watch out for men who will not make a commitment to you. <coughs> Why? Because they are time wasters. Right? They're wasting your time. Uh, and I think that's what problem is saying, isn't it? If you find someone who cannot commit, will not be faithful, will not make a vow before you, then move on. Because it's not... This person is not serious about having a, a marriage with you. The second thing is, as we look from this proverb, is will that person be faithful to you? Uh, are they serious about the promises they make? When you look at their life, when they make a commitment, when they say one thing in public, when they make a promise, will they keep it? Because this is the sort of person that you want to marry. Because when they make a vow and they say, I will be faithful, I will do all these things, then they will keep it. If you find someone who is unable to make those promises, unwilling to, or is unfaithful to the promises they make, then you must listen to the advice of the Taylor Swift song that I've been listening to recently. You're never ever going to get back together. Okay, let's look at the last one, the character flaws. Okay, so the next one, we see that uh, actually in the book of Proverbs, it says that uh, there's some character flaws that we need to watch out for, especially for people that we are thinking of marrying. And uh, there are three here, which are actually, uh, there are four here, isn't it? No, three here. Actually, four. Some more there. Oh, I didn't print all of them. Oh, there are four. And they all talk about the same thing. The, uh, the quarrelsome wife. Okay, the quarrelsome, ill-tempered wife. Obviously, the other proverbs as well, which talk about the angry man. So I think that people who are quarrelsome and angry, you have to be careful. Because 
it, it will make disharmony in marriage. But the question is, you have to ask yourself, is why is there so many proverbs about the quarrelsome wife? Again, I think it comes down to the role of men and women in marriage. Because what is the role of women in marriage? To be submissive and to respect the husband. So, to be a quarrelsome, contentious wife is the opposite of being submissive and respectful. And uh, some of the pictures that it gives there is quite um, vivid, right? It's like, the quarrelsome wife is so unbearable, better to go in the rain or the hot sun and the roof than to live with uh, such a wife. Or better to live in the desert. You know, the desert is a very unpleasant place, right? Okay, uh, than, to, than to exist with such a wife. Now, why is it so bad to be a quarrelsome wife? Well, <clears throat> again, Genesis chapter 2. Oh, sorry, next slide. Actually, I don't think it's Genesis 2. I think it's Genesis 3. <coughs> Sorry, I think I've got the wrong reference. But um, it says there, after Adam and Eve sinned, it says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, the desire here is not a good desire because it is the same word which uh, later on, God warns Cain that Satan desires to have you. So it's desire with an ill intent. Not a good desire, but a negative, bad desire. So it means here that Eve, or the wife, actually desires to have the husband, but not for good things, but to bring him harm, to bring him down, to cause him discomfort or pain. And that's why a quarrelsome wife, or a contentious wife, can be very difficult, disharmonious to a, a marriage. Because she's not actually like the ideal wife who brings him good, but instead brings him harm. So rather than being a, a good partnership together, at an attitude of helping and serving each other, uh, it's actually a picture of fighting and contention. That's a, the picture of the marriage that they have. So this is not someone that is good to marry. Someone who's contentious, someone who's quarrelsome, uh, someone who is angry, wants to fight. The next uh, and the last uh, item is that... Uh, you should avoid a person who is uh, disgraceful or has no discretion. Now, I, I think again, this linked to uh, Proverbs 31, which is a contrast. Now, when you get married to someone, you become one flesh. Uh, now, though, that's a good thing, but uh, there are bad things which happen. When you're one flesh, uh, what they do it reflects on you, isn't it? So, if they do something bad and it's embarrassing, it's embarrassing for you because you are there partner, that's just, that's just the way things are. Now it says here that the wife uh, can bring the husband glory, like a crown. A crown is something that you're proud of. Or she can bring decay because she is disgraceful. Why is she disgraceful? We don't know. Maybe she's sexually pr- pr- promiscuous or she's flirtatious or she mismanages the household of children or she acts in a very foolish way. But in uh, Proverbs chapter 11, it talks about a beautiful woman uh, who has no discretion. She's, she's uh, well, vividly described as a pig with a gold ring through her nose. And why a pig? A pig is a very distasteful creature, right? Because if you've... Well, we don't know much about pigs because we don't live in farms. But the farms... In farms that uh, you live on, if you see a pig, a pig has no discretion, you know? Like you'll sleep in its poo, in its urine, in the mud. Right? It just... The environment that it chooses is just... A disgrace. 
So that's what happens if you choose someone who, whose character shows no discretion and will choose to do things which bring disgrace and dishonor upon you. Now again, in my extended family dinners, I know of one relative in particular who always brings embarrassment to his family. Uh, he will always, not always, but very regularly, lose his temper and swear and say inappropriate things. He will get into arguments unnecessarily over really trivial things. Uh, they will, he will take food without waiting for everybody else. And, and I can see, you know, his family just cringes whenever he does all these things. This is a man who doesn't just, has no discretion. He, he, uh, he brings disgrace on his family. Again, uh, my sister has a friend. She's very, very attractive. If she came in today, you'd say, oh, this very attractive person. She's a uh, mixed, you know, I don't know. I can't give you all the details, but she's mixed. She's, she's a model looking, right? But her friends are always horrified at the way that she treats her children. She brings her children out for dinner and they can run wild and like, they will like be at the edge of death, right? Uh, you know, next to the escalator, right? Uh, playing hot water, fire. But she will be completely indifferent. Right? But she's very interested in her clothes and looks, but she's a great embarrassment even to her friends because of the way that she, she lives. Now, if you were her husband, I think that it would be a decay to your bones. It would be a source of pain and struggle for the rest of your life. So, uh, according to Proverbs, if you're going to marry someone and they're going to become one of you, then you need someone who will not bring disgrace upon you, who is someone who has discretion. So, in conclusion, as we look at this whole wealth of information about marriage, remember, ultimately, that the Christian marriage is all about the woman who submits and respects the husband, who is a wonderful helper to her, and the husband is someone who sacrificially loves to the point of death, loves the wife, loves the family, who is willing to sacrifice the things that matter to him for her personal, emotional, mental and spiritual growth. And as you are listening today, if you are a husband and wife, you have got to ask yourself, are you behaving in that way? Are you loving sacrificially as a man? Are you submitting and respecting and building up your husband as a, as a wife? As a single person, ask yourself, who are the people that you look to or look for or are going out with? Ask yourself, do they really fear God? Don't look, look beyond the superficial, the charm and the beauty. Do they walk the talk? Do they take God's word seriously? Or are they strangers and foreigners to God's way of life? And will their character bring you joy or will it bring shame to you? Because ultimately, what my dad always used to say, if you marry in haste, you regret in leisure. And uh, as you can see, uh, many times people will say, who you marry, how you marry, is the, 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 the most important decision you will make in your life for your future happiness, for your future well-being. So you should choose wisely, marry wisely and love wisely and then if you follow God's way, you will, I think, all things being equal, live happily before God. So let's really pray that we will not see our marriages as something outside of our life with God, but intrinsically part of our relationship with God. And that we will truly do everything that His Word tells us to. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we may be blessed with wonderful marriages, 
that you help us to be the marriage partners that we should be, that if we are wise, that you will help us to willingly submit, to respect our husbands, to build them up, to encourage them, to be helpers so that they will be able to serve you even better in this world. We pray that if we are husbands, you help us to sacrificially love, to be like Jesus and give up even our very lives, the things that we enjoy, the things that we want, our own plans and dreams, for the sake of the benefit of our wives, both personally, emotionally, intellectually, physically, and spiritually. We pray that if we are single, you help us to have wisdom, to look beyond uh, what is on the outside, but to see what is truly inside, that we will choose those who fear God, those who walk right way, in the right way before you, and those who will truly bring us joy and blessing and not shame and disgrace. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.